0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. As quickly as calls for gun reform come after a mass shooting, so do calls to improve mental health care. Mental health is
1: your problem here. This is a mental health problem at the highest level. And clearly from the accounts, there was a great deal of mental health issues involved. We
0: want to better understand whether there is a meaningful connection between mental illness and mass shootings. Also, why young people become violent. Two experts from the University of Colorado join us. Dr. Michael Allen teaches and practices psychiatry and emergency medicine. And Jason Williams is a pediatric psychologist also associated with Children's Hospital Colorado. They spoke with Ryan Warner.
2: Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Another doctor told us recently that people don't become violent as much as they learn not to become violent. Is that true? Are people inclined towards violence and then most of us are taught that it's not the right thing to do?
3: I think there is a genetic basis for aggression. Aggression is kind of normal, and some people express it more than others. And part of what you do as you grow up is you learn when it's appropriate and when it's not. Do you tend to agree with this
2: assessment, Jason?
4: Yes. Um, The other thing we do see is the more modeling of violence uh, around, uh, particularly youth, uh, the more likely they are to act using violence going forward.
2: That is, it's not being taught out of them. It's being reinforced in them. Correct. What are the biggest factors that lead young people to violence? What's a good predictor? It's a question we hear so much after shootings. So one of the single most
4: salient predictors is a history of violence. Uh, So somebody who has a history of violence is more likely to act violently in the future.
2: What gets them there in the first place, though?
4: So there's a number of factors that contribute to that. One could be the home, what's modeled in the home. So if you come from a home where domestic violence is prevalent um, or you live in a community uh, where violence is a a way that people sort of interact with another gang-infested neighborhood, for example, those kinds of things could also predict you using violence uh, future forward.
2: Okay. Anything else you'd add? No. No. I mean, what's interesting is you did not say mental illness. Why not? Is that not a predictor of the kinds of violence we're talking about with mass shootings, say? Well,
3: you know, mental illness is, is actually pretty rare. The, the rate of schizophrenia in the population is about only 1%. And then the number of people within that 1% who have had the kinds of exposures that would dispose them to be violent is even less. And so just as a, as a matter of math... Uh, the mentally ill aren't going to be the biggest contributors. There are going to be many more people who are not mentally ill, but who grew up in violent households who are going to be carrying the bulk of the risk.
2: It sounds like you're talking about the most serious forms of mental illness, not necessarily depression, which would be far more widespread.
3: I think we have tried to help the community appreciate the fact that mental health problems are common. And so there are uh, figures like 20% are mentioned sometimes but of the forms of serious mental illness that are sometimes associated with violence those are are pretty rare if you look around at the mass shooters that we've seen recently nobody's been able to say much of anything about mental illness and the Las Vegas shooter it's it's just a mystery Uh, what happened there. And that's most often the case is that you might think of people as being troubled somehow, but not mentally ill in the way that we usually
2: use the term. I'm glad you said that because I think so often after a horrific attack, people think, well, no one in their right mind would be capable of doing something like that. Is, Is that just not a very scientific statement, in other words?
4: Certainly. And, you know, I think it's hard to fathom that someone would hurt other people in that way. And uh-huh. so it's easy to go to something like mental illness as a, as a label uh, to say that's what's wrong with this person. There must be something wrong with their brain or the way that they see the world. And that's why they're acting out in that way.
2: But it is not necessarily that they have a diagnosed or even diagnosable mental illness. That is say. correct.
3: Usually not. Yeah. I think we, we go
2: too quickly to sort of blaming the mentally ill. Do you make anything of the fact that most people who perpetrate these mass shootings are male?
4: So I can I can say from uh, the youth that we work with um, at Children's Hospital, we often see that males tend to come in with more acting out types of behaviors. So they're often referred for things like aggression in school or uh, behaviors, uh, oppositional behaviors, things of that sort. They're not typically coming in and showing depressive signs like you might see in more of our female patients that come in where they're maybe more anxious or more depressed where they're turning it inward. So it would make sense that males would likely use violence as an, a, a way to express themselves um, in, in not a very positive way. When you look
3: at people with mental illness, they actually have the same rates of violent behavior, but the violent behavior is, of women is less medically damaging than the violent behavior of men. Uh, so, what do you
2: mean less medically damaging?
3: So women tend to slap and men tend to punch. Hmm. That's, that's sort of the quick metaphorical way to put it.
2: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're grappling with the question of, of how much mental health might be connected to violence, the type of which we see in mass shootings. Uh, For perspective on that, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Allen, who teaches and practices psychiatry and emergency medicine at the University of Colorado. Also, Jason Williams, he's a pediatric psychologist associated with Children's Hospital Colorado. So, Dr. Allen, you said that, that folks are often too quick to go to mental illness as a driving force, potentially, behind mass shootings. Is there a risk in that? Does that add potentially to stigma
3: well, it certainly adds to stigma, but the larger problem is that it distracts us from uh, the real problems and things that we should be doing. Like what? Like research on gun violence. Uh, Captain Obvious says maybe the CDC
2: should study gun violence. <laughs> you know? This is actually made a bit easier, apparently, in the budget bill that just passed.
4: So, I would suggest that uh, that research would be very helpful. I also believe that if we did a lot more in the preventive. Realms and started to point to how can we help people not get to this place. Is, um, is that
2: um, work against child abuse? Based on what you were telling child us earlier, abuse,
4: domestic violence, um, bullying in schools—a lot of the areas where we know uh, create stress for youth um, and make it much more difficult for them to cope in, in a, a very healthy way.
2: I wonder if it's that people want a quick solution. They want something that you know maybe you can pass a legislature in a week and solve the problem. What you're talking about is a slow and systemic change.
4: That is correct.
2: Does this feel like a moment when you might be able to make these arguments and get the money you need? It's a lot of money. These things tend
3: to run together but really require interventions at an early age when you can't pick
2: out who exactly needs it, and so you have to do it on a population basis. I see. So it's not as if there's a red flag in kindergarten and you target all the money to that one kid out of 30. No. I Did Uh, Did you know that lightning fatalities have gone down? uh, I did not know that. So uh, fatalities due to lightning
3: have gone down, and it's not because we figured out which kid was going to be struck by lightning on the ball field and sent him to the doctor beforehand. We just took all the kids off the ball field, and so then people don't get struck by lightning. That's the
4: population effect.
2: What one change would you make if you could? So I certainly
4: have a strong belief that if we did more universal screening for depression in youth starting about the age of 10, uh, we'd be more successful in identifying kids uh, before they actually needed full-blown mental health services. The other thing is – we start talking about emotions as young as preschool, emotional literacy and giving kids the opportunity to learn how to express themselves. You basically
3: teach people to use verbal skills. It's true that among people who are violent, their verbal skills are uh, less good than people who are not. So if you can train people to use words to solve problems, then violence goes down.
2: If a parent is listening and is concerned about a kid, what advice would you impart?
4: I uh, Certainly uh, seek help. One of the most simple one is the crisis service line that's been set up here in Colorado. It's really designed to answer questions, I have a concern, and they can give resources. Is
2: is this the suicide hotline that was set up in the wake of Aurora? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. A lot of people,
4: and it's not just suicide, however. I'm not sure that people know that. I'm not sure I knew that. It's a crisis line. Um, It actually does not call a suicide line for that reason. Hmm. Um, It's really to help people who are in crisis or potentially could be in crisis. Um,
3: Google Colorado Crisis Services. Uh, Conflict of interest, I'm the medical director there. Okay.
2: uh, (laughs) (laughs) What change would you like to see in in how parents approach their children's mental health?
3: I think parents have to model uh, the kind of behavior that we want to see in kids. So I think parents solving problems between spouses by talking about them and, and demonstrating how that's done.
4: Modeling is just as powerful in a positive way as it is in the negative way.
2: What I'm hearing is that so much about how a child acts later in life is about their home life. I have to think that there is abuse and bad behavior being modeled in other countries that don't have mass shootings at the rate that, that the United States does. Is there something else in this soup? Well, my, my bias is that the thing in the
3: soup is the big guns.
4: I think it's a complex picture. I think guns certainly are part of the um, reason for that. I think they're probably different, maybe societal expectations and norms. Individualism, that we really hold ourselves as important, that um, the idea of community is a little bit different in other countries.
2: Interesting. Well, gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank you.
4: Thanks.
0: Dr. Jason Williams is a pediatric psychologist at the University of Colorado Hospital and Medical School, also associated with the Pediatric Mental Health Institute at Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. Michael Allen teaches and practices psychiatry and emergency medicine at CU and sees patients at the Depression Center at CU Anschutz. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For as long as scientists have been studying climate change, they've been reluctant to say any specific weather events happen because of global warming. Well, two researchers from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration headquarters in Boulder say that's changing. Stephanie Herring and Marty Hurling are editors of a report earlier this year in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, and they join us from Boulder. Welcome.
5: Uh, Thank you. Good morning.
6: Thank you.
0: Stephanie, lay the groundwork for us first. I mean, there's a big difference between climate and weather, right?
6: That's right. Um, So climate is what we expect. So it's, you know, in Boulder, what would you expect the weather to be in in March? And climate allows us to look back at the past and understand what would we expect for any average March in Boulder um, or somewhere in Colorado. And weather is what we actually get that March. So as we know, this, we- this winter has been a little bit unusual relative to what the past climate has been. And so you can think about climate as that expectation of what you want, you think you're going to get, and weather is what you actually get.
0: And so Marty, this report references three specific weather events and says they would not have been possible in a world not affected by human-caused climate change. So tell us about these events and why this is new and put this into context for us.
5: Right. So uh, the events that we, um, that the authors of the papers for which we edited um, found um, particularly unique effects of human-induced climate change were heatwave-related. One in the atmosphere, the global temperatures during 2016, um, also the temperatures over the continental reach of Asia during summer, and then also the um, temperatures in the ocean in the Gulf of Alaska as a phenomenon that had been called sort of the blob, sort of a lingering high temperature in the ocean for quite a period of time. So the three scientists that examined those events found that if you had looked at the statistics of, of those temperature events in the late 19th century, they could not have achieved a magnitude as high or as large as occurred in 2016. So their conclusion was that the event simply could not have occurred, where event here means passing a certain red line, if you will. It could not have been so warm without the change in climate that has occurred roughly in the intervening 100 years.
0: So could you go a little bit deeper into that for us? Why is this such an important thing? It seems like you're saying that climate change is now having an impact on things that we can actually measure now.
5: Mm. So this is true, and I think that isn't necessarily a novelty of what was found because um, various science studies have been showing for well over a decade or longer the effect of human influence on weather patterns. Um, but what's beginning to emerge is that that effect is beginning to sort of stretch out of the range of variations that had been part of the normal climate, sort of back to Stephanie's point. Well, he, what we had become acclimated to is our expected range of variations, in weather patterns that define our habitual climate, um, climate has drifted away from what we used to know it to be. And so certain phenomena, especially in the, in the temperature realm, but another uh, reach is also um, so some coastal flooding um, is beginning to become much more prevailing. These nuisance flooding is just another one. Arctic temperature and Arctic climate is another uh, ingredient. where well, we're just not snapping back to where we used to be. We're pushing beyond where we've ever been.
0: So, Stephanie, you say it's not really the science here or or even the methods used in this research that's groundbreaking. But what's new is this psychological barrier that you're crossing and, and talking about climate change in a new and different way. Is that right?
6: That's right. Um, so... We should also note that the number of attribution studies, the number of events that have actually been looked at across the planet is actually quite small relative to the number of extreme events that have actually happened. So there's a really good chance that these aren't actually the first events that have ever occurred on our planet that have were not achievable without um, human influence on the climate. But it's simply the first events that we've actually found through um, through these independent you know studies. And so... It's important to remember that um, just because we found them this time doesn't mean this is actually when we've crossed this threshold in our environment. It may have already been crossed in the past, and we'll need retrospective studies to go back and try and look at that. But it is important to note that as from the climate community, we've actually been predicting that given the ongoing global warming of the Earth's climate, we actually did expect to see that at some point we would cross this threshold, that the amount of warming that we've seen would be sufficiently strong to push an extreme event beyond the bounds of what could have occurred naturally. And so these are sort of, uh, you know, very important studies because they're the first events of their kind to be found.
0: But this does change the conversation, right?
6: I think so. Uh, I think that it does. People should be acknowledging that. At some point, um, we knew that we were going to cross some kind of threshold and start experiencing weather and, in, in some cases, climate events that, we were not, that were not possible without human influence. And this is some of the real first emerging evidence that we have crossed that threshold. And that's an important point in time to take note of.
0: Now, Marty, it's important to note that we're still talking about three weather events that can be tied this directly to climate change. Is that really enough to say that there's, there's this link here?
5: Well, I think back to uh, Stephanie's point. Um, So this was not an exhaustive search for all manners of events. Um, Some of these events allow one to, I think, do some generalization over. Um, One of the events was just the planet's temperature as a whole, so the global mean temperature, which, again, eclipsed uh, the highest value um, on record since the uh, late 19th century. Um, The trend in that, value of global mean temperature continues to go up with very little um, abatement from year to year. So the trend line just continues to move us away from a climate that we used to have. So when thinking about, I know no one lives globally, but that's where a lot of the organization of what happens locally comes from. It's how high is the planet's temperature becoming. So we're not going to drift back to the temperatures in the early 20th century for the global temperature. Um, That's just going to keep moving away from that baseline. And with that, many boats rise with that tide, um, especially regarding heat waves. And although um, a couple of heat waves, only two or so were identified over land areas and one in the ocean, um, more of these are prevailing and and coming about that simply would not have hit such high values um, without climate change. So this is sort of the, um, the fact that land temperatures in particular are warming at about twice the rate of the Globally average temperature, most of the globe being covered by water, the inertia of the water keeps that temperature rise somewhat more modest as a pace, and the land sort of warms at twice that pace. So when we hear global average temperature was, oh, maybe one degree Celsius, roughly two degrees Fahrenheit, above the values of a century ago, you almost double that for land values, especially in places like Colorado and so forth. We've warmed in Colorado about two degrees Fahrenheit just in the last 30 years.
0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Stephanie Herring and Marty Hurling. The report connecting specific weather events to human-caused climate change appeared in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. Uh, Marty, you were speaking to our producer last week, and you went so far as to emphasize this statement, quote, climate is dead. That's pretty bold. What did you mean by
5: that? It it sounds kind of dark, doesn't it? It does. Uh, (laughs) Well, what we mean by that, what I mean by that is that Climate being something which we have become accustomed to something to which we know when a weather pattern occurs in a given year um, it may it may be somewhat unusual but it'll return to some sort of normative state based on historical experience
0: something we've seen before
5: something we've seen before exactly and so now what we're beginning to experience are conditions we've never seen before so we're not reverting back to the good old days in any in obvious way we're moving to a place that we've not experienced before and so in that sense climate as a way of soothing it comforting us as to where the range how far you we can be elastic in our weather patterns that stretching is moving us beyond what we have experienced
0: So are you saying history is becoming a less accurate predictor of what we can see in the future?
5: Well, I think if you only, let's take temperature again, if you only use the last 100 years of temperature as as what your guidepost would be for how hot, let's say, a summer might be in Colorado, um, you're going to be, you're going to fail in your outlook in the coming decades. And some places in the planet, the temperature trends are sufficient that that failure is already occurring.
0: Stephanie, I'm thinking about other major weather events. Let's say the the floods we had a few years ago where it was considered a, a one-in-a-thousand-year event. Can we no longer say that that flood or something would be a thousand-year event because of what you're talking about here?
6: Well, so for any particular event, including the Colorado floods, you need to um, look very – and there's a lot of – close analysis that needs to go into that particular event to understand the change. But in terms of precipitation and flooding overall, it's true that as our atmosphere has warmed, we do expect a warmer atmosphere to be able to hold more moisture in it. And so it's possible for more precipitation to fall at one time. Now, of course, that becomes more complicated when you talk about things like flooding because so many other factors go into the actual impact of any weather event. Um, I heard in your previous interview a gentleman mentioning that we have fewer people uh, struck by lightning. And that's not because we have less lightning. It's because we've taken adaptive measures as a society to um, address uh, lightning strikes. And it's the same with precipitation or heat, the actual impact, flooding is an impact. And so it matter, depends on things like land use, um, how, what kind of flood prevention, uh, storm system type of infrastructure we put in place, et cetera. And so the reason this research is so important is because we need to understand that a lot of those things that our world has been designed to withstand are based on historical climate. And so if the historical climate is no longer a predictor of what they should expect in the future, then some of those design standards, etc may need to be adjusted. And so to prevent the impacts portion of it, which is what a flood is, then uh, we need to have a good understanding of where we think we're going to be in the future for extreme precipitation.
0: Marty, can you bring it back to Colorado for us and give us kind of your thoughts about how do we prepare for this? If this is happening and this is what your studies are showing, how does this impact Colorado?
5: Hmm. Well, you guys just were talking about the uh, the floods in in Colorado, September twenty thirteen. Um, you know, very intense rains, roughly a five day period, and um, devastating effects in some of the local communities in the Front Range, um, basically from Fort Collins down to Colorado Springs. Floods, flooding rains like that have happened before at any given location. It was a very rare event. It's not quite clear whether that event was made drastically more likely or more intense because of climate change is an ongoing research question that's going on in our community. Hmm. I want to take us to a bit of a bigger issue about water in Colorado because we do have, uh, coming up soon, we'll have our um, snowpack survey, the one April snow water equivalent.
0: And river levels and snowpack are a concern right now.
5: A big concern. So this year looks like we'll probably um, be below the, the average. It might be actually one of the lower Um, snowpack years um, in the last uh, roughly 40 years on record. So um, we already know the bathtub ring, Uh, Lake Mead and Lake Powell are at about half of their capacity. And and that's been a situation that has developed kind of rapidly in some ways. Uh, If you look back at 1995, 96, just about 20 years ago, the reservoirs were full, we were flush. um, And and here we are today, half full and and a bad year. And temperatures, as I mentioned before, have warmed quite a bit in Colorado over that period. An interesting question, then, is what is the link between warmer temperatures and the amount of water that flows in the Colorado River, fills those reservoirs, and then meets all of the, the needs, most of which is agricultural and municipal, for the seven states that depend upon the Colorado River's water supply? Um, I don't have an answer to give you right now, except that there is a concern that the higher temperatures are an appreciable drain on the water resources in the state and that they are believed to be an important factor in the decline in the storage. Temperatures are only expected to go up. So depending upon how much that water resource is indeed beholden to the temperature, uh, that may give us some some guideposts to the likelihood of having enough water to meet, let's say, the, the Grand Colorado River Compact, Um, obligations for all of the seven states. That is perhaps one of the biggest challenges for Colorado and the neighboring states in the upcoming several decades.
0: So much more to discuss, but we'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking with NOAA researchers Stephanie Herring and Marty Hurling. The report connecting specific weather events to human-caused climate change appeared in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. When it comes to predicting the weather, most people can agree that if the forecast is calling for precipitation and it's really cold out, it's going to snow. And when it's warmer, it'll rain, right? Well, a new study out of the University of Colorado says it's a bit more complicated than that. Keith Jennings is a Ph.D. student at CU Boulder and the lead author of a new study. He found that a temperature threshold is not the best predictor when it comes to rain versus snow.
5: You know, we could be here in Colorado where it's snowing and nearly 40 degrees Fahrenheit. But if you're on the East Coast, it could be you know, 32 degrees or 33 degrees and it's you know it's raining.
0: Jennings says variables like humidity and elevation can affect what type of precipitation a place will get. More humidity means more rain and higher elevation means more snow.
5: Here in Colorado we have kind of this double effect where not only is it less humid even during snowfall events but it's also we're higher so the snowflakes can fall faster so they're spending less time falling through warmer layers and they have less of a chance to melt.
0: But this research doesn't mean areas with a lot of humidity that are at lower elevations can't get snow at warmer temperatures.
5: You'll still get anomalies in both cases. So you know, we could get rain in Colorado when it's 32 degrees or lower, or you can be in North Carolina and you get snowfall that's, you know, those warmer degrees Fahrenheit, so 35, 36.
0: Jennings says he hopes this research will improve the current models of predicting precipitation and get people out of the mindset that 32 degrees is the cutoff for rain and the start for snow. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We recently ran across an old postcard that was both fascinating and kind of disturbing. It shows a young woman on horseback in midair after the pair leaps from a towering wooden structure. A huge crowd looks on. We turned the postcard over and discovered it was taken in Pueblo in 1905. We wondered, what is the history behind this strange image? So we have Jeremy Johnston, the curator of the Buffalo Bill Museum in Cody, Wyoming, on the phone. Jeremy, welcome. Good morning. The woman astride a diving horse may have been part of a traveling show operated by a sharpshooter named Dot Carver. He was Buffalo Bill Cody's partner in a Wild West show in the 1880s, but apparently the two showmen had a falling out after just a year, right?
7: That is correct. Doc Carver built himself as the champion rifle shot of the world. And in 1883, he decided to partner with Buffalo Bill Cody and formed what was the precursor of the Wild West shows. And they lasted for one year. And, of course, each man came up with a different version as to why they split. According to Doc Carver's memoir, he got tired of Cody's drinking, but Cody claimed what happened was one day in the arena Carver was missing all his targets and so Buffalo Bill was called out by the audience to, to shoot and Buffalo Bill outshot Carver and Carver stormed out of the arena in a rage and that was the end of the partnership.
0: So maybe some tall tales there, but maybe some truth to all of that. Now, how did Carver come up with the strange act for his show, this, this diving horse?
7: Yes, Carver claimed that while he was in the North Platte area of Nebraska, he witnessed a horse jump off a bridge into the river or fell off the bridge and dove into the river. And when he split from Buffalo Bill and started his own show, he was looking for acts that would have drawn attention and and given him an edge over his competition, and so in Kansas City, he introduced a horse by the name of Black Bess who dove 40 feet from a tower into a pool of water that was 20 feet deep. And Carver claimed that was the first diving horse act ever shown in the world.
0: Now, why do you think he added a, a woman rider to this, this diving horse uh, scene?
7: Yeah, he introduced what he'd the women the woman in red, and woman in red. She okay. would, the woman in red, and she would ride on the back of the horse as it left the platform and dove into the water. And I really believe he wanted to bring in a, a female as an added element of danger. But also, you know, he was looking at Buffalo Bill Cody, who hired Annie Oakley, and Annie Oakley was really well known in her shooting contests and shooting displays. But I think Carver was looking for a way to bring in a female act and one that wouldn't compete directly with his shooting displays.
0: So was it just one woman who did this over the years, or were there many, many women who performed this stunt?
7: Yeah, there were a number of women who performed on the Carver diving horses. Uh, Carver's daughter, Lorena, was one of the first Another lady by the name of Sonora also came in as part of the act. And Sonora went on to marry Doc Carver's son, Al. And she is the one that they based the Disney movie on in the early 1990s called Wild Hearts Cannot Be Broken.
0: I see. Now, what about the the woman in the photo shot in Pueblo? Who is that?
7: Well, it's noted that her name is Eunice Winkless on the photograph. However, in doing a search online databases and looking at the Colorado newspapers, I couldn't find any account about her jumping the horse from the platform on a $100 bet. Um, I did learn her maiden – her real name was Eunice Padfield, and I think Winkless must have been her maiden name. And I, I can't vouch the story that she took the bet and after she completed the dive – whoever may have been running the Diving Horse Act, because there were other people besides Carver with the same type of act. But anyway, she was not given the $100. And could have well been Carver, uh, would not been out of character for him to cheat someone out of a bat.
0: Just take that money and run, in a sense.
7: Exactly.
0: How, how long did the shows go on? How long did this go on?
7: Well, when Al and Sor- Sonora were married... One of the gifts he gave her for the wedding was a contract to perform on the Steel Pier at Atlantic City. And they were there for a number of years. Uh, There were other performers at Coney Island. But the acts continued into the 1970s. And then finally they were. 1970s before they were shut down by animal welfare advocates.
0: Well, and that that's a fair question. Was horse diving seen as cruel? Was it harmful to these horses to jump so far into into water?
7: It was dangerous, and there were some fatalities. Uh, one of Doc Carver's horses, when it was dumpi- uh, jumping out at California into the ocean, managed to catch a wave wrong, and the horse named Lightning was injured and died as a result of those injuries. Um, It was also very dangerous to the young ladies who were riding the horses as they dove. Uh, Sonora managed one day to hit her face flat on the water during the dive, and as a result, it detached her retinas, and she was blinded.
0: She was blinded because of the act.
7: Exactly. Yes, so it was very dangerous for both horse and rider.
0: And so finally, this photo, wrapping up very quickly, is it, is it a famous photo? Is it something that you can see all over the, all the world, this photo in Pueblo?
7: Yes, I've seen the photo reproduced in a number of books about women in the West and, show, and books on circuses, Wild West shows. So it is, it is a prominent photo.
0: Jeremy Johnson is the creator of the curator rather of the Buffalo Bill Museum in Cody, Wyoming. We posted the photo that got us interested in the history of diving horses at CPR.org. Professional truck drivers get white knuckled too when mountain roads are covered in snow and ice. It's an admission Finn Murphy of Boulder makes in his debut book. It's called The Long Haul A Trucker's Tale of Life on the Road, and it's a finalist for a 2018 Colorado Book Award. It opens with a harrowing drive on Loveland Pass. I spoke to Finn last year. Uh, So, where are you joining us from today?
1: I'm in Bradenton, Florida.
0: Okay, and you have your truck with you, I'm assuming?
1: I do. I'm on a a two-month truck tour.
0: All right. Well, I'd like you to read a bit from the opening of your book. You decide to skip the congestion at Eisenhower Tunnel and are cruising up Loveland Pass in your truck, and things seem okay until you reach the top. Why don't you take it from there?
1: At the top of the pass, high up in my Freightliner Columbia tractor, pulling a spanking new Fully loaded, custom moving van, I reckon, I can say I'm at an even 12,000 feet. When I look down, the world disappears into a miasma of fog and wind and snow, even though it's July. The road signs are clear enough, though. The first one says, runaway truck ramp, one and a half miles. Next one, speed limit, 35 miles an hour for vehicles over 26,000 pounds. Next one, are your brakes cool and adjusted? Next one, all commercial vehicles are required to carry chains. I run through this checklist in my mind. Let's see, one and a half miles to the runaway ramp is too far to do me any good if the worst happens. 35 miles an hour downhill sounds really fast. My brakes are cool, but adjusted? I hope so but no mechanic signs off on brake adjustments in these litigious days. Chains? I have chains in my equipment compartment. They won't save my life sitting where they are. Besides, I figure the bad weather will last for only the first 1,000 feet. The practical aspects of putting on chains in a snowstorm with no pullover spot, in pitch dark, at 12,000 feet, in a gale, wearing only a t-shirt, is a prospect Dante never considered in enumerating his circles of hell. The other option is to keep rolling. Maybe I'll be crushed by my truck at the bottom of a scree field. Maybe I won't. I roll.
8: And you
0: do make it down the mountain pass. You've checked off all your lists, but you go really slowly down the pass, much to the chagrin of the other truck drivers. It's a pretty hair-raising experience. What is it like, that feeling of dread during a difficult drive like the one you just described?
1: well it's i mean it's it's horrible and the older i get and the more i do this um, the more the more um you know trepidation i feel
0: huh not 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 less because you're becoming more professional you actually have more dread
1: i have more dread because now i now i have a much clearer idea of what of, of all of the bad things that can happen <laughs> i see that's something that I would, you know, if, if, if everybody probably in Colorado has been behind one of those fuel trucks going down Loveland Pass or down the other side of the Eisenhower Tunnel, and it probably never occurs to people that the driver's probably scared. So think about that next time.
0: Well, so what made you want to become a truck driver? Uh, you, you actually attended a liberal arts college. You're on your way to a degree. Uh, can you describe the conversation you had to kind of say, you know what, I don't want to stop that and I want to go into trucking?
1: Yeah, so I finished I finished 3 years of college um over, over over on the East Coast and I was working for a local moving company in the summers between semesters. And my third summer there, I took a short road trip from Connecticut to Virginia Beach, Virginia with a long haul driver and we went over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel and under the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel and at that point I was seduced. I would the I you know, I came from a very regimented household. I came from a very regimented academic thing. And uh, once, I, once I was out there on the truck, that was it.
0: It was freedom for you.
1: It was freedom for me, although it was not a popular decision in my household.
0: <laughs> y- your parents didn't take it too well then?
1: Uh, my, my name was erased from the family Bible for a certain <laughs> period of time. But it got reinstated after a while.
0: So you become this truck driver, and and you write about the hierarchy of truck drivers. I didn't know this existed. How do you fit in that hierarchy, and and why are you where you are on this list of drivers?
1: Yeah, so it's really funny. So depending on what you haul, depending on what kind of truck you drive, depending on how you're paid— and, there's, and then there's names for everybody. So there's all this nomenclature. So I work for a van line, I move families and so we're called bed buggers. Movers are bedbuggers. And then if you haul a flatbed, you're called a skateboarder. If you haul natural gas, you're called a suicide jockey. If you haul live animals, you're called a chicken choker. Okay. And so we all have our little our little place in the hierarchy and you know it's sort of fungible but here's what's not fungible the chicken choker guys they're 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 at the bottom in fact if you go to a truck stop late at night and all the f- spaces are full and there's only one space left it's going to be next to one of those animal haulers because the smell is overpowering
0: so you're a a bed bugger. okay but you're you're a mover of of people's goods cross country that's correct okay so it's it 's kind of a, a derogatory thing to be called a bed bugger. How, how do you feel about that
1: i I think it 's a badge of honor and they call our and the tr- our trucks are called roach coaches <laughs> uh, we we 're looked down upon a little bit in the trucker fraternity because we load and load, unload our own trucks. you know we have to empty houses of furniture, we have to pack cartons and all that kind of thing so it 's very hard physical, demanding work. Uh, we We get paid a lot more than most other truckers, so that's they don 't like that and uh we don 't really care what kind of truck we drive we 're not into the fancy chrome and all the lights so yeah we're we're we 're not going to be uh welcomed at the coffee counter the trucker 's only coffee counter at the truck stop
0: so you don 't get coffee before uh, let 's say someone who's moving cars or something like that
1: yeah so the other thing about movers is we don 't have a particular route, so we can 't be relied on for that high slice and coffee every Tuesday at 1030. We're gypsies. We just go where the moves go. So we're always a stranger wherever wherever we end up.
0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking to Finn Murphy, a truck driver based in Boulder. His book is called The Long Haul. Now, you've loaded and unloaded shipments of people's personal belongings as a long-haul mover. You've made a career out of it. I'm sure you've seen some things. Uh, You write, quote, movers are in possession of all your stuff. If stuff is important to you and it is disproportionately important to most of the people we move, then the movers are the most important people in your life for those couple of days. If we don't get a modicum of respect, well, we will preserve our dignity one way or another. Are there things... That that you come in contact with that uh, maybe people need to understand as uh, as they deal with movers.
1: Well, I think um, I think what yeah. So I think that that statement right there kind of covers it. What what happens with movers is that we learn more about people in thirty minutes than maybe their best friends do after thirty years. And, you know, I don't bring any judgment to that, or movers don't bring any judgment to that. And if you've got, you know, two tractor trailers full of household goods, you know, 80,000 pounds of stuff or 40 tons of personal possessions, that, you know, if that's okay with you, that's fine. But I I think it's important that you treat the movers and the crews, you know, nicely and respectfully. And most of the time that happens, but sometimes it doesn't. And it just doesn't make any sense if we're carrying all your things, then... uh, I think respect would be easy and logical.
0: So it's, it's not a threat, per se?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. But, you know, we do have situations where, um, you know, most of my helpers, so, so I have to hire crews, and I have crews all around the country, and that's what we take, uh, you know, that's how we load and unload the trucks. And, you know, most of these people are at the, at the bottom end of the American dream, which is an interesting seat that I have as the driver. So I work with, you know, people at the bottom end. And then I work for the people at the top end. So I have a sort of interesting perspective, which the funny thing about movers is that movers are kind of, we're all kind of Buddhists in a way that we don't get attached to things because we know the ultimate fate of what, of what happens to stuff. So even like the the poorest mover in the world, the poorest local mover guy, he's not going to become a collector. None of us are collectors, but we all work for collectors.
0: Can you tell us about one of these collectors? It is a story of a family in Evergreen and their baby grand piano. Everything that could go wrong does go wrong. Can you quickly just tell us that story and how you fit into that?
1: Oh gosh, yes. So, so actually, we took over from a move where the, the driver had left, and they left this the, this family's all their possessions in the, on the driveway up in Evergreen around one of those hairpin curves up there, and uh, and they had a grand piano, and it wouldn't go in the house or it wouldn't go up the stairs of the house because of a turn, so we had to put it up an outside staircase. And there was only two joist hangers holding it up. And when we got to the top of the grand piano, the stairway gave away. The piano fell 14 feet onto the ground, and we completely destroyed it. And we just all felt horrible about it.
0: And it began to rain on top of it.
1: (laughs) And then it rained on top of it. And and the customer's there with his wife and his toddler, and they look over at us, and we look over at him, and, and... we just, all of us just started crying. We just, we just couldn't handle anymore.
0: How does it feel to be there for those important moments? Maybe a divorce or a promotion or maybe a new baby. You're right there in these very intimate moments of these people's lives.
1: Well, that's, what, that's what's wonderful about being a mover, is that you have this instant intimacy which you, which people can acknowledge, and then if they do, then you have a really nice connection for a short period of time, and then you have the other kinds who who, who deny it and don't acknowledge it, and you know don't let you use bathrooms and so forth. Uh, I just think it's a great way to gather wisdom about how you want to run your life and what kind of possessions you want to have and what you want to hold to be important. And to and to me, it's not the stuff. That's, that I'm moving, it's important. It's your connections with your family, your connections with your friends, with your community. And a lot of people that I move, they, they get that backwards.
0: Finn, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Nathan. You take care.
0: You too. Boulder author and truck driver Finn Murphy speaking to me last year. His book, The Long Haul, A Trucker's Tale of Life on the Road, is a finalist for a 2018 Colorado Book Award.
8: Well, the word got around me, said, this kid is insane, man collection just descending him to the mainland get your education don't forget from whence you came and the world's gonna know your name what's your name man alexander hamilton
0: finally today there's still time to luck out and win that hamilton ticket lottery seven shows remain for the denver leg of the tour on april 1st the cast will take their final bow in colorado and head on to a new city in the cast is Colorado native Matheny Trico. The actor's played James Madison and Hercules Mulligan 420 times on this tour, and he's finishing in his home state. He grew up here in Aurora. Trico shared some of his Hamilton experiences with CPR's open air. He's been touring the country with Hamilton for the last year, and he says he feels overwhelmed with joy to finally be able to bring it to Denver.
8: I literally feel like I know somebody in the audience every single night. It's, 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 it's overwhelming. I just, it's a gift that I couldn't, didn't expect to ever get. In the show, Trico plays two
0: characters with polar opposite personalities, he says.
8: They are literally night and day. They may be based in the same person, because it's me, but um, I, I, Hercules Mulligan, he is a little bit more loyal and warm, and he's really like, he's kind of like a, like, for lack of a better term, he's bro He just, he's hanging out with his guys, and, he, and um, he's just trying to do his part in this revolution. But when you have James Madison, James Madison's a little bit more jealous. He's a little bit more, he, uh, he feels he's underappreciated. He feels that he's doing just as much as Alexander Hamilton is, but he's not getting as much recognition and as much respect.
0: After it wraps up with Hamilton, Trico plans to move to L.A. and work on a musical of his own.
8: I'm currently uh, part of a creative team writing a musical that starts workshops um, later this year. Um, the musical's called Silver Linings, the musical, and we are all just getting ready to hit the ground running as soon as I'm done with this to get this musical ready for workshops.
0: But it's not going to be easy to take his final bow in Colorado.
8: I get to take my final bow in front of my family and all of my friends here in Colorado, and I... I'm so excited. It's going to be an it's going to be a sad, a bittersweet day, but it's going to it be a great day. Nice to get Hamilton on your side in my be nice in my be nice get Hamilton on your side talk less hey! smile more hey! don't let them know what to rock against or what you're for.
0: That's music from the original Broadway cast of Hamilton. CPR's open air spoke to Matheny Trico, who played Hercules Mulligan and James Madison in Hamilton in Denver. He grew up in Aurora and joined the touring cast about a year ago. And when he takes his final bow on Sunday, he'll have performed 420 shows. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Esterbrook. Of course, follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.